God bless. Take your Bibles and we'll just get right into it. So we're uh, going to begin our series, The Mystery of God, an expositional study on the book of Ephesians. The Greek word for mystery is mysterion. It is found six times in the book of Ephesians. It is defined by Strong's as a mystery or secret doctrine. Its usage is a mystery, secret, of which initiation is necessary. In the New Testament, the counsels of God, once hidden but now revealed in the gospel, or some fact thereof. The Christian revelation, generally. Particular truths or details of the Christian revelation. Helps Word Studies defines the word as mysterion, the root of the English term mystery. In the Bible, a misty mysterion is not something unknowable. Rather, it is what can only be known through revelation, i.e., because God reveals it. In Ephesians, the word is used in connection to the mystery of Christ, 3-4, the mystery of the gospel, 6-19, the mystery of his, God's will, 1-9, the fellowship of the mystery, 3-9, and the great mystery concerning Christ and the church, 532. It is this mystery that Paul stated was made known unto me, 3-3, and which he sought to boldly make known, 619, to the church. In simple terms, the mystery can be understood as God's eternal plan in Christ, whereby through him men are forgiven, cleansed, and made fit for eternal inheritance. There is great spiritual depth needed to be made to understand the mystery. For this... The Spirit of God is necessary to enlighten men to God's eternal purpose in Christ. Because all the elements and particulars of the mystery are spiritual and heavenly in nature, nothing in the natural realm can help us in gaining belief in it. And as with many things heavenly, it is faith, which is a gift of God, that can allow men to understand the hidden things of God. Faith is that internal spiritual ability which allows sight of the unseen spiritual world. Since faith is a gift of the Spirit, then its spiritual power can lift us to understand things of the spiritual realm that mere reason and speculation could never accomplish. It is for this reason that the mystery of God should be both meditated upon and preached with the hope that what God has revealed concerning what he has made the believer to be in Christ might be enjoyed and cherished. Until such time that the appearance of Jesus Christ makes them a reality. For this to be accomplished, there must be given enlightened spiritual understanding. This mystery has direct relationship to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and an entirely new heavenly body formed through him. It has been referred to as church invisible, which will later be revealed as church triumphant. The mystery has its practical origin in those born of the second man, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who ultimately will be transformed and made to share in his spiritual image. And just as the original Adam begot men in his fleshly and sinful image, so will those born of Christ share in Christ's spiritual and holy image. Because believers have been saved by the Son of God and have been made part of his heavenly body, there is an identification with the Savior in his death, life, and glorification. 
It is this truth whereby sinners are transformed into saints and ultimately glorified through Jesus Christ, which is the riches of the glory of the mystery. In Colossians 1.27, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 now. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Ephesians, though written to those at Ephesus, includes, as in Paul's other church epistles, all those saved by the Son of God and purpose to share with Him in heaven. The James Fawcett Brown Bible commentary is, the object of the epistle is to set forth the ground, the course, and the aim, and the end of the church of the faithful in Christ. He speaks to you, the Ephesians, as a type or sample of the church universal, Alford. Hence, the church throughout the epistle is spoken of in the singular, not in the plural. Churches. The church's foundation, its course, and its end are his theme alike in the larger and smaller divisions of the whole epistle, end quote. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Here we observe the ministry Paul held as an apostle. Strong's Concordance defines the word apostolos, a messenger, once sent on a mission, an apostle. Its usage is a messenger, an envoy, delegate, one commissioned by another to represent him in some way, especially a man sent by Jesus Christ himself to preach the gospel. Helps word studies define apostolos as properly someone sent, commissioned, focusing back on the authority, the commissioning of the sender. As with all gift ministries, Paul's divine appointment was purposed by God. Ultimately, it is the Lord himself who both sets and ordains those purpose to declare his person to the world. And though every servant is not an apostle, every apostle is a servant of Jesus Christ. Because Christ chooses men for ministry, then they are given sufficient spiritual power to be effective in it. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith, or he Jesus saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew Poole's commentary on this verse. Here was their call to the office of apostles. It is observable that God calls of men to places of dignity and honor, and his appearances of favor to them have ordinarily been when they have been busied in the honest employment of their callings. Saul was seeking his father's asses, David keeping his father's sheep, when the Lord called them to the kingdom. The shepherds were feeding their flocks when they had revelation of Christ. He called four apostles from their fishery, Amos from amongst the herdsmen of Tekoa, Matthew from the receipt of custom, Moses when keeping Jethro's flock, Exodus 3, 1 and 2, Gideon from the threshing floor, Judges 6, 11. God never encourages idleness, but despiseth not persons in the meanest employments. Follow me, that is, to return no more to your employment. 
I will make you fishers of men. Here is the work of ministers set out, to gain souls to God. They are not to fish merely for a livelihood, much less for honor and applause to themselves, but to win souls to God and are to bait their hooks and order their nets to this end, which they will never serve if either by general discourses they make the meshes so wide that all will dart through them, or if by their wit and learning they make their discourses so fine and curious that few or none of their hearers can understand them, nor will all our art make us fishers of men. I will make you, saith Christ, Paul may plant, an Apollos may water, but God gives the increase. But yet we must order our nets rationally and probably in order to our end. And without that, cannot expect God's blessings. Nor were the apostles presently to enter upon the work of the ministry, but first to follow him. And indeed, such should all gospel ministers be. In the choice of Matthias, Peter limited the people in their election to those that had accompanied with them all the time the Lord went in and out amongst them, Acts one twenty one. Other ministers commonly prove fishers for something else, not the souls of men, end quote. It is Christ who is the ultimate builder of his church, and he who, according to divine will, sets the members in it as it has pleased him. There is also no man who should be considered a true minister of Christ whose appointment issues from either mere human desire or personal will. All things of the Lord are ordained by him, and there is nothing in his true church which should be either influenced or brought forth from fleshly will. It is ultimately Christ who has provided and placed apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers in the church for the perfecting of the saints, the edifying of the body of Christ, and instructing believers into a fuller knowledge of himself teaching us that every minister's ultimate purpose should be that those saved by Christ are instructed in a greater knowledge of him. This is the ultimate object of those ordained by Christ for ministry. But if this is not done, and other things are both preached and stressed, greater than exposing men to a greater knowledge of the Savior, then you can be sure that those leading are seeking to gain followers unto themselves and are not true ministers of the gospel. Ephesians 4.13 Till we come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man and unto measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. If men reject and or do not feel the need to be instructed and led by those spiritual ministers that Christ has placed in his church, it is viewed the same as rejecting the Lord himself. Yet sadly, this is not uncommon, as many who claim to be Christians negate the spiritual importance not only of ministers of the gospel, but also the Holy Spirit, which Christ himself sends to secure a man's salvation. Hence, sadly for most, it is far more important for men to try and get to heaven on their own than leaning upon God, the Word of God, the Son of God, and those ministries that have been divinely sent to declare both which is critical for salvation. For the proud, they would rather fail themselves in an attempt to glory in themselves than to turn to God and the grace offered through God's Son.
Pride also is, at its core, an internal resistance to be led by anything but human will, so that even if God's will is made known to those lifted up with pride, still they will prefer their own. Like the divine appointment of priests in the Old Testament, gift ministries are according to God's appointment and not man's. Hebrews 5.4 And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Just as the members of Christ's church must be chosen by God, so must those chosen to strengthen and edify his people have God's will as the reason for their appointment. Since no man has the right to assume any holy clerical position in Christ's body, who is not first ordained for it. The reason for this is, in a deceptive and sinful world, there are many seducers, false teachers, and carnal men that seek to influence the church. These spiritual impostors care solely for the selfish and personal interests of themselves and have no real and genuine interest in leading people to God's salvation. It is for this reason that all who claim to come in God's name should be tried by both God's Word and God's Spirit to determine if they actually are of whom they claim to be. 1 John 4.1 Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. When it is said that believers should try the spirits, this means to spiritually examine any who claim to either possess or speak by it. As with all other high vocations, Simply saying you're something, i.e. doctor or any other respected vocation, does nothing to actually make you such. Thus, human words or human reason alone should never be employed as an accurate measure to either determine or judge who are Christ's true ministers. By their fruit, Jesus said, men's true character is known. Thus, if any claim to be of God, yet have not the spiritual fruits of his Spirit, and inherently lack the spiritual power that he gives to all those saved by him, then they should not be considered as having any true relationship with God. Simply because only divine spiritual fruit and holy spiritual power are certain indicators that men have been baptized by the Son of God with the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 3.11, John speaking in reference to Christ, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He, Christ, shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Matthew Poole on Matthew 3.11. He shall baptize men with another kind of baptism, the baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire, with the Holy Ghost inwardly washing away their sins with his blood and sanctifying their hearts, the Holy Ghost working in their hearts like fire, purging out their lusts and corruptions, warming and inflaming their hearts with the sense of his love and kindling in them all spiritual habits. Or with the Holy Ghost, as in the day of Pentecost, there appeared to them cloven tongues like as a fire, Acts 2.3. Thus the term fire is made exegetical of the term the Holy Ghost, or with the Holy Ghost and with fire, changing and renewing the hearts of those that believe in Him by the operation of the Holy Ghost, and consuming and destroying others 
that will not believe as with fire, end quote. It is Christ who gives the Spirit and the Spirit which proves true relationship with God. Ultimately, without the fruit and gifts of the Spirit, no man should be considered representing he who sends the Spirit. And in John 20.10, in reference to Jesus Christ, And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. To the saints which are at Ephesus. The Greek word for saints is hagios. Strong's defined it as sacred, holy. Its usage is set apart by or for God. Holy, sacred. Helps word study defines the word properly different, unlike. Other, otherness, holy for the believer. Hagios means likeness of nature with the Lord because different from the world. The fundamental meaning of hagios is different. Thus, a temple in the first century was hagios holy because different from other buildings. In the New Testament, hagios holy has the technical meaning different from the world because like the Lord. And lastly, hagios implies something set apart and therefore different, distinguished, distinct, other because of special to the Lord, end quote. All saints are separated ones whom God has by divine choice chosen to be his own. This is also why if a man will not separate himself from the world, then you can be sure that he still remains part of it. Since no true saint holds a greater love for the world than their Savior, to do so only confirms that they have never been separated unto God through union with his Son. And to the faithful in Christ Jesus... Knowing that his letter would be circulated outside of Ephesus, Paul includes other New Testament believers who had proven themselves faithful in Christ Jesus. It is fidelity and faithfulness to the Son of God that constitutes true Christian standing. Ultimately, it is the criterion of true believers of Christ that they will remain faithful to he who has called them. Hence, the main characteristic of those truly saved by the Son of God is that they will remain faithful to he who has called them to God. The new spiritual heart given to them through the baptism of the Holy Spirit both creates and empowers this internal holy strength. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, A new heart also will I give you, the Lord said, and a new heart will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. It is practically impossible if a man has actually been made a new creature through Christ to then either return to or remain in a sinful state. To do so reveals the absence of the new birth and that no true spiritual regeneration has taken place. Because believers are spiritually born of God, The divine power working in them to remain faithful to Christ is greater than sin's power to lead them away from him. When then men are truly saved, the Christ spirit within them is greater than the previous sin nature which once ruled them. Because of being born of God, sin no longer can retain its previous control it once exercised over the soul. 1 John 3, verse 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, 
for his seed, in reference to the Holy Ghost, remaineth in him. And he cannot sin, because he is born of God. Barnes on 1 John 3, 9, that the germ or seed of religion implanted in the soul abides there as a constant, vital principle, so that he who is born of God cannot become habitually a sinner, and that it will remain so, continue to live there, and that he will not fall away and perish. End quote. Where previously sin dominated the life, now God's new nature contained in the Holy Spirit does. Romans 8.14 For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. The result of the Spirit's leading is that men will seek to embrace God's will and not reject it. Because of being given the very nature of God, this allows saints to faithfully walk in God's statutes and keep His commandments. So that where previously men could not, because of the weakness of their flesh, keep God's laws given to them, now through being given the Holy Spirit, they can. Matthew Poole on Ezekiel 36.26 A new heart, a renewed frame of soul, a disposition and mind, change from sinful to holy, from evil to good, from carnal to spiritual, a heart in which... The law of God is written. It is a sanctified heart in which the almighty grace of God is victorious and turns it from sin to God. Will I give you? God takes it to himself, and indeed it is his only work. A new spirit, this is exegetical, and tells us what the new heart is. It is a new holy frame in the spirit of a man, which is put in him, not found in him, given to him not wrought by his own power. The stony heart, stubborn, senseless, untractable, that receives no kindly impressions from the world, providences, or spirit of God in its ordinary operations and influence, that hardens itself in a day of provocation, that is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This evil heart shall be taken away, and this God will do only what he can do. Out of your flesh put to the man, and heart of the flesh, that is, a heart different from the stony, hard heart, quite of another temper and frame, hearkening to God's law, trembling at his threats, by gentle providences, mounded to a compliance with his will, to forbear do be or suffer what God will, receiving the impress of God as softened wax receiveth the impress of the seal, end quote. It is because of this new spiritual heart produced through receiving the Holy Spirit that those now newly created sons of God, begotten in Christ's image, can remain faithful to God. And as with all things related to salvation, men are both saved and kept by God's power and not their own. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 2 now. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is God's grace that affords the opportunity to be saved through faith. And then faith that produces the result of being justified in God's sight. By Christ making peace with God through his death, believers are enabled to share in the same divine union that exists between the Father and himself. No longer enemies of God because of sin. Peace with God has been established through Jesus carrying its penalty. Peace is also that divine fruit that is given to men 
when they have been both justified and made righteous in God's sight. It is this peace with God and peace of God that the apostle seeks to make the Ephesians fully aware of. Ultimately, where true righteousness is, its effect will be peace. Hence, because believers have been justified by faith, the result of their justification is that now eternal peace with God is theirs. Isaiah 32, 17. And the work of the righteous shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. From man being made righteous through faith in Christ and continuing to walk in Christ's righteousness, the supernatural fact will be his experiencing a peace which transcends and passes all human understanding. Matthew Poole on Isaiah 32, 17. The work of righteousness shall be peace. The effect of this prevailing practice of righteousness shall be prosperity and outward felicity. Quietness, tranquility, both of mind and outward estate, assurance or confidence, the observation of God's precepts will beget in them a confidence and assurance of God's mercy and fulfilling of his promises, end quote. Once a man has been justified and made righteous through faith, peace is his possession. It is this peace that Jesus spoke of that he would give to his early followers. And in John 14, 27, we read, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. It is solely because believers have been made righteous that they now experience the comforting assurance that all has been right with God and spiritual peace with Him exists. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 now. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. It is God who is the source of all blessings, and God alone that possesses the power to bless men in heavenly places. Therefore, no matter the blessings that a saint has been blessed with while on this earth, greater and more eternal blessings await him in heaven. And just as Israel needed to enter Canaan to receive their full inheritance, so must Christians be lifted to heaven to receive theirs. Because all spiritual blessings are in Christ, then it is fitting that he must be the one to escort and lead believers into them. And just like Joshua led Israel into Canaan, so will Jesus lead those God has purposed to save into heaven. It is from heaven that Christ will return, and to heaven he will receive all those purposed for eternal inheritance. John 14, 3, Christ's words, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Gill on this verse. And if I go and prepare a place for you, seeing I am going to prepare, and will prepare a place for you, of the truth of which you may be fully assured, I will come again, either by death or in person a second time here on earth, and receive you unto myself. I will take you up with me to heaven, I will receive you into glory, that where I am, there you may be also, and behold my glory, and be forever with me, and never part more." End quote. The Lord delights to give, 
and especially so regarding those gifts, blessings, and the celestial possessions which are themselves eternal. There are no greater gifts than spiritual gifts, and no more beneficial gifts than those which are eternal. Ultimately, the believer is blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places simply because God is in heaven and his spiritual nature is eternal. The scripture is also plain to remind us that all eternal blessings must have connection with he who has ascended and now sits in heaven. For the Christian, or for that matter, any other man, all spiritual and heavenly blessings are connected to the Son of God, teaching us that believers will be blessed not because of themselves, but only because of their connection to he who brought both grace and truth to man.